Welcome to the Cood Street Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we sit and discuss a newly released science fiction, fantasy, or horror book. This month, the fourth Cood Street Roundtable, uh, we will be discussing Paul McCauley's Into Everywhere, a newly released hard science fiction book out in the UK and through all sorts of wonderful digital outlets. This month, the four of us are me, Jonathan Strahan, uh, podcast regulars Ian Mond. Hello, Ian. Hello. Podcast regular James Bradley. Hello. And podcast really quite regular Gary K. Wolf. Hello, Gary. Hello. How was how was everyone? I'm fine. Guys. It's the uh, last day of Passover. <laughs> Does that mean you're hungry? <laughs> no, no. Passover is not a fast. It just means lots of uh, non-leavened products and stuff and. And matzah, and uh, yeah, we've we've had bowel issues the whole. Oh, I can say, you can't treat regular; you're less regular than normal. Correct. So and not just me, the, the the family. So I take it you're ready for some leavening. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, exactly. When the pizza arrives, that's when we know it's over. So. <laughs> now you see, I, when I've heard of the way that people celebrate the end of religious festivals. Uh, or whatever. I, I've never really associated, you know, it's like, and on the 14th day, with the arrival of the pizza, it all came to an end. That's how, that's, a wonderful um, that's how many Jews celebrate the end of Passover. That is serious. They, 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 they order pizza. Oh. Yeah, you know, kosher, although it won't, ours won't be, but, but they do. If they can get it. In fact, the, the bakeries here start literally churning out stuff yeah. second Passover is done. So. Yeah. Sensible people. Anyway, this is not a discussion no, no, about Passover. No, 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 Please, no, no, no. move no. along. Well, okay. Well, we are here, of course, to discuss Paul McCauley's 20-something novel. I think it's like his 22nd or 23rd novel. Um, the book's called It's Everywhere. It's the second in what's being called the Choice series and features uh, a, a group of recurring aliens, the Jackaroo, that have appeared in a handful of short stories. And in fact, in, in a single short story collection as well that he put out that Macaulay put out digitally. I guess as a beginning, how, how familiar are you guys with reading Macaulay? Is this anybody's first Paul Macaulay novel? That would be no. No? Okay. Silence. No. So somebody could like just sort of say, no, I read him all I the bet. time. I go way back. I've read the Confluence I, works. And... I do read him all the time. I, I'm a big admirer of his and I've read quite a lot of his work. I was very fond of uh, years ago. How long ago was Fairyland? Fairyland, which is a marvelous book. Mid-90s, mid, mid 95. Okay. That's one of my favorite novels of his. Yes. And I really like the, um, the, the, the trilogy that he uh, finished with um, the, the Outer Planets. The, the Quiet War series. Yeah. Thank you. That trilogy. That was that a trilogy or a four-book series? Because it's, it's got four books. It was a quartet. My, my, I, I thought it was a trilogy plus one, actually. <laughs> okay, oh. that would still make <laughs> it a quartet, wouldn't it, Gary? Or, or, or do you just like yes, not, well, or, or do you prefer not to think about say in the mouth of the whale? We'll just skip over that one or something. Well, sorry, we're now just picking on Gary. That's not fair. It's amusing, but it's not fair. So <laughs> it's, it's 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 not fair at all. I'm I'm the only one here without an accent. Well, okay. This is, this is, and that would include Paul if he were here. So. For a not particularly wonderful period of time, Macaulay wrote a series of science of science thrillers. And as a terrific science fiction writer, 
and I think a really engaging science fiction writer. You'd think he'd be a good writer of thrillers, but as is often the case, books like Hold Wide World, White Devils, Mind's Eye, Players, had their strengths, but they weren't really ever his best books, or his most engaging work. And so that was when he went back to, I think, the Quiet War books, or well, back to space opera, hard, you know, hardest of like space opera, the kind of new space opera that he'd become known for. He obviously being one of the primary examples of that radical new hard SF that was called for by Interzone back in the 1980s. Yeah, his work and maybe Steve Baxter was being the exactly. Is that what the confluence is? Uh, the confluence is that kind of stuff, yes. And the okay, 400 billion uh, stars books are. And I mean, when you get a, around books like you know, Pascali's Angel, it, it isn't. It's a sort of all like an alternate kind of book. But Red Dust is Cowboy Angel, Cowboy's Angels, and Cowboy Angels is an element of it. Uh, and then you've got something like, say, I mean, well, Fairyland, which is quite different, and is actually a you know a brilliant book. But here we have new hard SF series, major new writer, a quick precursor because you know we, we try to talk about something before we plunge right into the book, uh, and that is. Macaulay is not currently published in the United States, and I'm wondering if you guys have any feeling for why. Gary? It's puzzled me for a long time, and I remember... It's, it's been a problem uh, for quite a while, and I would have thought the Quiet War thing, things would have, would have done well here. Uh, I'm not certain... He's not, he's not more of a hard science fiction writer than writers who are popular here. Uh, he's... Uh, he's he's pretty he's pretty good at plotting. The plots in in, in these last two novels are, are, are fascinating, bifurcated plots, and there's nothing um, off-putting about it in the way that. But you know, they're, they're, I just can't understand why some novels don't get picked up in the United States. Um, there's nothing, for example, uh, in Macaulay novels that are more challenging than in, than in Stephen Baxter novels, which do get published here. How about you, James Ian? What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I personally, I, I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. I mean, this book in particular, uh, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a British, well, maybe it does have a Britishness to it, but it doesn't, it's not set in places where Americans might find a bit off-putting or, or, or use language that would be distancing. It's, it's very accessible, uh, engaging storytelling. So I, I don't understand why. He doesn't have a, an American uh, audience unless I assume it has something to do with the numbers. I have it doesn't everything. So you know he might has he ever had an American American exposure and did that not go so well? Is that what this is about? He was published in the United States up through the end of the Quiet War series. I think they might have skipped some of the uh, the thrillers that I was talking about a moment ago, but certainly uh, the Confluence series, the Four Hundred Billion Stars series, uh, universe stuff. The Quiet War oh. series might even have been originally published in the States. I think uh, Pyre, you know, Lou Anders picked up The Quiet War in the, in the US. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. That's a good point. Well, well, is, so it's about numbers, isn't it? Isn't that what it's always it about? It may be. But then uh, well, the other thing, sort of, I mean, we say it's about one numbers, we're, and we're living through a particularly bleak time on one particular so side of things, and that's the awards side of things. And the, you know, Paul's also not been heavily recognised in, say, a popular award like the Hugo. He does very well on the Campbell Memorial Award, those sorts of things. So that's a little, you know, that sort of shows maybe that he's not, always as widely read as he could be or engaged with by the active science fiction community, which I find surprising. That may be true as well, but it, uh, I, I don't think we should focus too much on, on Macaulay's having this problem when we can each name any number of excellent 
British or Australian science fiction novels that are not being picked up in the States either. It's a problem with the States more than it is with the authors. Yeah, I think so. I think that's very true. I mean, we're looking at, at a man who's been nominated for the Clark Award five times in the last 20 years or so, and who's won... Although not won. recently. Uh, he, I no, think he, the last time was the first... This yeah. wasn't the last time the first Quiet War book, and he, he hasn't since. It's 2009, yeah. And he was, oh, up well. for, he was up for the BSFA just a year or two ago, and Evening's True. Empires was up for the uh, Campbell Award in the States uh, couple, about in 2014. So there are, there are people paying attention. It's just for some reason not breaking through that, that popular kind of thing. And I don't quite get it. I mean, I look at a book like Into Everywhere, which I confess, readers, we've caught at the moment, or listeners, we've caught at the moment where everybody else has read it completely. In James' case, he read it some weeks ago. Uh, and I've got 80% of the way through it, so I'm going to be making some guesses about things and representing maybe a little bit the people who are kind of go, going, well, I don't like spoilers and I don't know what, whether I should read this book, and you should. So um, I guess let's kick off. Who wants to have a, a stab at trying to describe this book to the world? Go, James. Go ahead. <laughs> You'd like <laughs> to duck this stuff. <laughs> Why do I get to do that? Um, well, it, it is a sequel of sorts to the the first of the Jackaroo books, although the first Jackaroo book was not the first Jackaroo story, which is um, uh, something coming through, which came out beginning of last year, beginning of 2015. Um, it picks up, it's got a kind of, bif as Gary described it, a bifurcated narrative, um, with two halves set about a hundred years apart, I think it is, about a century. Um, the first picks up pretty much immediately after something coming through on one of the planets, which so I need to go back a step. It is set in a universe where 20 or 30 years from now, as the global situation on Earth spiralled out of control, aliens appeared and said, we are here to help, and gave humans access to a series of planets which we could reach through wormholes they'd set up in the in the um, near solar system. Humans started pouring out and settling those planets. <clears throat> and once they did, it became clear that there were lots of other elder cultures there that had done this before them and that these people who were these aliens that had come to allow them to go out onto the planets had done this before and those cultures had completely vanished, whether through the passage of time self-destruction or whatever. Um, so they're kind of living on these planets in the ruins of these elder elder cultures and digging through the ruins, looking for things. The aliens who gave them access to it, the Jackaroo, remain very mysterious. They only appear as, as avatars. Um, and they won't tell us anything about who they are or why they're doing it other than to say they're, they're here to help. Um, the first book revolves around a group of characters basically discovering an alien spaceship. And so this one picks up after that and humans have started, you know, moving further out using these technologies that they're finding. Um, so one half of it is about that and it's about a woman who has been affected by basically kind of intelligent alien software and it, it's messed up her brain um, and she is trying to essentially unravel what's going on around that. Um, in the future narrative, which is set about 100 years after that, the expansion has continued out onto to dozens, hundreds of other planets, uh, which they've accessed through a huge network of wormholes. Uh, and it is about a, uh, another, another character who has discovered, thinks he has discovered, 
um, the cure for a sickness hidden in some fossilised alien stromatolites. Um, and so there's a kind of continuing plot from the first book about a about uh, one of the main characters from the first book who's become a, a, a kind of preserved artificial intelligence in this book. Uh, and it's about a kind of move towards a kind of transcendence like lots of these, these novels are. Um, I think it works as a standalone. I suspect most of you would agree with me about that, but it's yeah, probably uh, better yeah, read absolutely. with the others. Yeah, there's one character from the previous novel that shows up really off camera in this one as a kind of consultant. Um, and that's the only, and that's not even a necessary plot connection. I had a question for everybody though. Uh, in, in, what you've just described sounds fascinating in any number of ways for someone who hasn't uh, read these novels and not familiar with them. I've been curious both with this and the previous one about the titles. Uh, Macaulay has a thing going on with prepositions or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but something coming through could be the title of a horror movie. It could be any number of things. Into everything, by the end of this novel, it's a very appropriate title. But does that title convey anything up front? No, not for me. Not especially, even though I guess there's a certain kind of enigma. I mean, if you pair them up, I mean, the idea of something coming through is an ex is engaging, but whether it's, you know, sort of science fictional enough or not, I don't know. James? And he's got a, he's got a chapter titled Wizards of the Slime Planet. Now, how can he resist that? <laughs> well, actually, I've been meaning to ask, has he lifted those all from classic works of science fiction, all the, the section titles? Not all. I mean, he's got one called Speaker for the Dead. There's one called Rogue Moon. He's... The, one of the things that struck me in both of these novels is how embedded Macaulay is in science fiction, how, how he uses it, he orchestrates familiar tropes in very interesting ways. I mean, you, uh, uh, James, you mentioned the spaceship, which is kind of a, a, a friendly, sometimes petulant uh, spaceship, which comes to his uh, rescue in various ways. Uh, he has not only those chapter titles, one of the, one of the alien beings is is named Unlikely Worlds, which is the title of his own blog. Um, there, I want to ask kind of, about that for oh. a second. Is Unlikely Worlds him? Is it, that's him? The, is it him represented in the book? That's a very good question. Because it's an excellent question. Because he's, uh, think about what Unlikely Worlds is as you read the book. Unlikely Worlds is a an, uh, an unusual... Uh, alien, the Takar or something, or one of these sort of creatures, I forget what it is. And basically it's supposed to be a swarm of prawns or something inside a <laughs> sealed fish tank uh, that travels <laughs> around and speaks in a deep, rather sonorous voice. And it's fascinated with narrative. It appears to know the mm -hmm. rest of the narrative but not reveal the narrative. It appears wherever the viewpoint story is happening, pretty much. Um... And it's coded, code named after his blog. I'm going, is this supposed to represent him? Maybe not, though. Well, but Unlikely Worlds, at least I got the impression, appears in the first book, too. So, yeah, you, you know, so he, 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 it, she, whatever, however. It's a bunch of, as you said, shrimp. Um, <laughs> well, well, except we don't know that's true. No, we don't, because it's, it's sealed in a box, and we know it's money. Mm -hmm. That's that's one thing we know. It's well, we don't. Well, so even even unlikely worlds doesn't says. Well, that's the closest equivalent, well, and yes. that and there's this wonderful idea that the males go out the 
scare quotes males go out and are collecting these stories mm. because that's how you woo the women. Uh, mm -hmm. So, which partners, I, yeah. correct, which I, I think is is fantastic. That, that I loved. I love that idea. But is it him? I mean, you, uh, yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. It's 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 the weirdest Mary Sue in the universe, you know, if, if fiction history. If it is him, if he says that it's him, but it's I, don't, I mean, it's there's there's a coincidental night. Sorry, I, I, no, I was going to say. I think I, I think it's possible to say that the that unlikely worlds represents a kind of story maker. It represents some figure who is constantly calling our attention to the fact that it's a story. Which is like the author, but I don't think I think it's a I think it's a stretch to say it is the author. Well, actually, mm. I mean, it, yeah, it's good. I was going to say I mean it's not in any narrow sense him, but it's clearly a a fairly playful interrogation of the idea of the author and their kind of role in manipulating narrative to create particular sorts of effects and ends, which is one of the things he's kind of talking about in it. Well, actually, right. Let me ask you this. Do you think something like potentially unlikely worlds representing the author actually is symbolic of one of the challenges in a book like this reaching out to a broader audience? Gary, you were saying quite rightly, I think, that uh, Macaulay is a writer who is deeply embedded in science fiction and he was engaged in that strain of science fiction that talks about having a dialogue with previous works of science fiction and potentially mm -hmm. future works of science fiction. And a lot of that's embedded in the kind of stories he tells and in this one. Does that kind of narrative, that kind of referential, uh, inward looking to the science fiction community narrative, potentially exclude other readers, put them off? I don't think it does, actually. I, I think that uh, some of these are what science fiction readers will, um, I mean, will recognize things that are familiar, but if you're not fam familiar with them, it's not going to bother a new reader. It seems to me that Jack Rue are, they're partly Clark's overlords, they're partly Poles Heechee. I think science fiction readers will pick that up. I think for someone who has not read Clark or Pole, they're a wonderful new kind of invention. Well, that's the Jackaroo, but the but unlikely worlds itself. Is, unlikely worlds itself is different. Well, well, unlikely worlds itself is just. I mean, we've seen a million enigmatic characters in in science fiction and fantasy fiction, and I don't. I don't. I this one in particular is a uh, yes, is very intertwined in the narrative and seems to be actually above the narrative in many respects. Mm -hmm. But not not the you know I I I, I don't think it's off putting. Uh, because, because frankly, I didn't pick up those Easter eggs that you picked up. I mean, I didn't know his blog was called Unlikely Worlds. That's not, that, that didn't mean, you know, that wasn't something that, that resonated with me. And frankly, a lot of the section titles that you've just pointed out, that didn't, uh, resonate with me either, which just goes to show how little, uh, old SF I read when I was younger. But, um, it, but I didn't, that, thus I didn't find it off-putting because I didn't know I wasn't, I wasn't in on the joke and neither did I know I was out, uh, that there was a joke to be had. So I'm not I'm not sure I'd call them Easter eggs. I think they are just small in jokes. There's a line that's an Easter somewhere, egg. So, so, there's a narrative line somewhere that just says "so long and thanks for all the fun." Yeah, that one I picked up. Okay, and so so that's that's the sort of thing it is. It's it's little jokes. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Because if you go back to the fourth of those quiet war books, um, Evening's Empires, one of the things that that was quite overtly engaged in was a kind of dialogue with science fiction. So all the section titles there were The Caves of Steel, you know, right. they were all 
you know. And one of the things I thought he was doing in that book was both having a conversation about the exhaustion of cultures, but also more specifically in in the same kind of way that I think Kim Stanley Robinson was having in Aurora, a conversation about, in a sense, the exhaustion of a particular strand of science fiction, you know, which the book kind of both embodies and then transcends in the same way that I think Aurora does. You know, it's, it's about a conversation with a tradition that it's simultaneously pulling apart and then saying, but still, there is a place for this. So, I mean, there's, it's more than just Easter eggs and it's more than just playful. There is a kind of meaningful engagement, I think, always with the tradition happening in Macaulay's work. Well, and Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, did you... please go. Oh, no, I was going to simply agree with you. Uh, and, and I think that becomes... Uh, a major theme late in this novel, and it becomes, um, it, it treats the idea of, of, of planetfuls of, of, of alien artifacts, of elder artifacts, of the ruins of previous civilizations. And there are a number of discussions, two or three, that struck me uh, about being so controlled by the past that you no longer have any imaginative energy of your own, being obsessed with living among the ruins, more or less. And Two or three characters, I think the Lisa actually expresses this concern at one time, that if we spend all our time looking at the past, how do we maintain mm -hmm. any forward thrust of creativity? And, and, and that's one of the central themes of Evening's Empires as well. I think yeah. I, I find that very interesting because it, it is a kind of discourse you've got going on there, which is one about a, a culture that's kind of caught, as we are in general, between a kind of past that we don't know how to get away from in a future that we don't know how to get to. And he's kind of articulating them. And one of the things I thought was very interesting about it is that it seemed to me to be a book that is very much Macaulay's book, but it's a book that comes after the Harrison Kefahachi books, which you can kind of hear moving in the background of it. But also, you know, there's echoes of things like those those latest books in the Spin series by, um, by um, Robert Charles Wilson in there as well. I mean, and... And, and that kind of sense that it's it's a book that's about you know both kind of how do we how do we get away from this weight of tradition, but simultaneously it's a book that seems to me to be very much about a series of kind of environmental questions, you know. So it, it's kind of embodying that discourse in different ways. Uh, I think at different points in the book. See, well, it's embodying it. Uh, just one, just to add one dimension to that. It, it certainly suggests things about uh, about human progress, and, and it suggests environmental concerns. But it also reflects back on science fiction being trapped mm -hmm. in a po potentially trapped in its own past. Well, well, wait a sec, wait a sec. But yes, true. But see, when I was reading it, because I'd read Aurora, and I'm glad you brought up Aurora, James, because this felt to me, and, and there's going to be lots of books that are actually in conversation with with Aurora because of what Aurora says about looking outward versus not looking inward in a in a um, stopping progress sort of sense, but looking inward in terms of the environment and, 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 and sorting this planet out before we even consider, I don't know, getting on a generation ship or finding a wormhole and going elsewhere. And with Macaulay, he, you know, he's, this is not generation ships, this is wormholes, this is 15 to begin with and then an entire universe of them. And this is, this is a lot of the debate, especially in the last third, is about that idea of uh, do we keep progressing, do we keep going outwards, do we risk these memes, these artificial uh, intelligences or these ghosts embedding themselves into our neural networks? Do we take all those risks on as we, as we move outwards, as distinct from a sort of Kim Stanley Robinson view in Aurora, which is, well, we tried to go outwards. We found out the universe didn't like us very much. And frankly, we should have spent all our efforts at home anyway. 
that's really and I think that that dialogue between these two books is a dialogue that I think is we're going to see more and more as and look it's new to me it's possibly a dialogue that's been around for 50 years but um, I, it's just it's just something that's really come to my head in the last six to you know well since reading Aurora frankly earlier this year so mm-hmm. just having those 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 conversations up against each other so it was interesting that you brought up Aurora James is all I'm really saying <laughs> well I mean there is a I think I think the Sorry, Gary. Uh, no, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that I think the, the that dialogue probably goes at least as far back as as as, as Jeff Ryman's idea of mundane science fiction, and to some extent, the Quiet War series was a pulling back into the solar system, and we saw a lot of that going on in, in novels of that period before before Stan Robinson more or less explicitly said, "No, you can't go there." Uh, a lot of people were realistically thinking that faster than light travel is uh, is, is a narrative device, but not a not a hard science fiction dream anymore. Well, I think that science fiction's always struggled with uh, the way that it interacts with actual science as it's discovered and dealt with, and I think you can see that with the way the uh, way we looked at mar- narratives about places like Mars has changed over the last hundred years. And to some degree, that happens with uh, with Aurora, which is the the, the great exemplar of uh, exemplar of the idea that the dream of humanity going out to the stars actually is vastly impractical and unlikely, and a misdirection of human humanity's energies, if not actually our imaginative energies. I don't think that it argues that it's a waste of our imagin- imaginative energy. And if you look at something like the, you know th- you know this book. Uh, into, into everywhere. I think it invests a lot in the idea that there is a lot to be considered about our our world by looking at this kind of a possible construct, even if the science is all hand wavy and neat terms. I mean, Macaulay's a really, really smart, really well informed man and knows a lot about you know current science, obviously. But even then, I'm not sure that he's still not skating by on the idea that you know wormholes will magically work and all this kind of stuff. It's more, I think, looking at things like the impact of colonialism and impacting with uh, so-called more advanced cultures and the way that uh, humanity has changed completely, much as the primitive culture being discovered, you know, or so-called primitive culture, uh, in inverted quotes, is discovered by a more advanced culture uh, and the way it changes. And, and you know, he, he collapses time, I suppose, by having the two, the two narratives so that you get to see further into the adventure that's happening. But still, it's a profoundly changed humanity because of its interaction with Jackaroo. And yet the same, because one of the, one of the really interesting bits and the one, a line that pops into my head right as you were saying that is that the, the, I think it's, oh, look, I'm paraphrasing it because I'm not looking at the book, but uh, Macaulay or one of the characters notes that we take our sins with us. So... That, that colonialist need, that, that, just, just the sins of, of, of humanity, the things that we've done to ourselves and to others and to other cultures, etc. We take, the Jackaroo haven't solved that. They've may have given us, uplifted us in the sense that they've given us technologies to go outwards, but they haven't, they haven't uh, fundamentally changed some of our, well, our core natures in, in how we treat the universe. Cause, because what's clear is this hundred year future, uh, narrative, you know, there's two empires uh, occur in that period, <laughs> both run by megalomaniacs. Not, not that we get to see them because they last for about 15 minutes, both these empires. That was one of my favorite passages, by the way, because, uh, and this is one of the things I admire Macaulay 
for doing for not doing that a lot of science fiction writers might have done. But we have this entire rise and fall of two empires and and the, basically the entire foundation trilogy in about two pages. Yeah. Um, and, and then we get on with our story. But I mean, there's also, I mean, the thing that we take with us in this book, and I think it's interesting when you put it next to the Quiet War ones as well, is a kind of destruction of the environment. I mean, we go to these planets and we just destroy them in the same way yes. as the French yes. Earth, which I think is really interesting. But one of, the things I thought, one of the other things I thought was really interesting about the book was the bifurcated narrative in a weird kind of way is the same structure that the peripheral uses, you know, and that that kind of sense of this kind of conversation between two timelines, you have this thing where all of these books about the environment, they keep coming back to time over and over and mm -hmm. over again. And that kind of, that sense of a much larger span of time. So this book is kind of bookended by this sense of a deep galactic time that's surrounding them. But even the narrative is kind of moving across. Is it a century or a century and a half? Sorry, it's about three weeks since I finished it. It's, um, it's in between that. It's about 118 years or something. It's well, one, 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 section is described as 150 years ago that the jackaroo came in and the more recent right. section 30 years ago that the jackaroo came yeah so just 120 all right 120 years but, but I, I would have read the peripheral very much as being uh, a piece of kind of anthropocene literature post natural literature whatever you want to call it but i mean it's very much a book that's about the trying to trying to get at this idea of kind of time and the environment in different kinds of ways. And I think this is doing the same thing. And I find that that kind of, that kind of temporal turn that they all take seems really interesting to me. Well, I, I think it's interesting you, you mentioned some of the things you did because I was struck by the idea, I mean, yes, they do go to uh, other worlds and they do you know, impact strongly with the environment and change them and change them without thought, but they are o only the latest in an ongoing series of uh, spe you know, species, you know, you know, peoples who have been introduced by the Jackaroo to these worlds who have remade them every single time. And then passed away. Yeah, well, and disappeared, yes. But also, it's like, I mean, even, uh -huh. even most, you, don't, you rarely come across any native uh, biology to any of the worlds we encounter in the book. Uh, they're all bioshines and introduce things and rules of the jack oh, that 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 you know, the, the, this, you know these crashing spaceships have left behind or whatever else and we've remade this environment so and so smashed a moon into that and changed that and uh, there seems to be not only no regard for doing it but but to come in and do it again and I wonder if that also makes some kind of some kind of tangential comment about how. Any change to an environment is so cyclical and not actually a fixed, unique, good thing either. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, in a, in a very real sense, those quiet war books, to go back to them again, are essentially novels of landscape. Certainly, the first three. And what he's oh, done yes. is looked at all of those pictures of the out of from Cassini and the various probes, and gone. I'm going. They're, they're books about writing about those landscapes. You know, so there's a level at which he's something which is very unusual, which is a, a science fictional writer of landscape. And he's kind of doing it again here, you know, in a very odd kind of way, this sense of the, I guess, the, the inscribed nature of the landscapes we inhabit, the sense that they are always kind of, the past is written into them in all kinds of ways, and that we are both shaped by them and then inscribing ourselves into them as well at the same time. And so it's a kind of interesting thing for a writer of science fiction to be doing because it's not 
you know, landscape's not usually something that science fiction is wildly interested in. Yeah, but to go back to yeah. Jonathan's point, the landscape in this instance isn't blank. It's been touched a number of times and the remade and rebuilt. I mean, this is not this is not a bucolic green field that we're that we're walking in and, and destroying. Oh, it's in no, a sense, I'm, it, I'm sorry, I'm not using landscape in that sense. I'm using landscape okay. in the, the sense that you use it in the kind of nature writing sense. It is a kind of very inscribed, often and and complex piece of. Um, okay. Yeah, there were long passages in the Quiet War. Some of my favorite passages, but I I understand they tried the patience of some readers. Where, as you mentioned, he would take uh, the Cassini spacecraft data and write what amounts to a natural history of that world from the ground. And it was just a marvelous piece of imagination that really almost had nothing to do with advancing the plot. But he, you could see he passionately wanted to know uh, what the surface of, of Io looked like, for example. Mm. They're my favorite bits of those books as well. And I mean, I think he's always been in, uh, invested in, and you see real glimpses of it in all of his novels, in creating almost poetic images of deep space and of these of lived versions of these observed real landscapes out in the in environment he'll write short I mean, he wrote a short story for uh, one of my books where you know he has you know sort of a small colony on a distant orbiting asteroid kind of thing that's this basically a campfire in the in in, in the space wilderness and he is, has a real gift for painting wonderful word pictures of science of science fictional landscapes and settings in a way that really brings his books to life and lets you plausibly imagine yourself in those spaces and that's one of the great strengths of his work i do as well i mean i do think also one thing that's fascinating about him though is that he's incredibly good at all of that stuff but he's an incredibly humane writer as well and one thing i always love about his books and i must say particularly these jackaroo ones is that you know he cares about his characters you know they yeah. feel you know, there's a kind of warmth and depth to them and a humour about them, which, you know, there's a kind of, it's not even about psychological sophistication, it's just about a kind of, a sense of the kind of humanness of them, which I find always kind of lovely and it kind of extends outwards because I, mean, I think he's actually really good on a series of things to do with gender and sexual politics and stuff like that, but in a very unshowy, implicit kind of way all the way through, which I, I find him a lovely writer in that, that respect. Well, I, I agree. That's definitely that second half, that, that unshowingness of dealing with those issues, especially in the, the one, the, the section set 100 years, you know, with the, with Tony, um, Tony's yeah. sexual adventures. I think, I think he deals with that really well. I, that said, we've spent, you know, 20 odd minutes talking about Macaulay and yet, I mean, I know, I know we haven't gone into plot specifics, but I find, and I found this with the Quiet War books as well, that the characters are less interesting or less important. Yeah, I, I do see what you're saying, James, that there's a humanity, there's a, but Lisa's own journey to me, uh, yeah, it's it, – look, let, let, let me put it another way. I think Macaulay is a very engaging and a very polished writer. I think these are beautifully paced novels in terms of telling a story and getting you to turn the pages. I, I zip through it. I mean, for me, zipping through it is knocking it off in four mm. days. Uh, but uh, Lisa and Tony – and I only remember their names because I just checked um, – memorable-ish characters? No, because by the time you get to the last hundred pages, they sort of get churned up into the into the plot mechanics and, and are less people and more just things that move the plot along. For me, you obviously, you know, others have different views, but it, I, and I found I, I, that with I, the Quiet War series as well, uh, that the characters were less 
less as important as the biggest story that was being told. Well, she, he, there, there. I think he has both kinds of characters. By the end of this novel, I was really, uh, I felt like I understood the the two central character, the two major point of view characters. The secondary characters, he has a, a Javert like villain uh, in this, and he's done this before. When he wants to pull a villain out, he's not, he, he's willing to go most of the way toward Marvel Comics, uh, and this one. So characters like that are not. They're, they're, they're there as plot points. His point of view characters tend to be sympathetic, but I think they tend to have so much happening to them that there's never a, never a lot of time spent on character interactions. And one of the, I, this is probably a spoiler, but one of the obvious suspense points in these two narratives is when, when and how are they going to come together. And when they do, I wanted it to be a little bit more character-oriented than it was, but by then there were so many balls in the air that the various plot points had to start getting resolved. Yeah, and, and, and to go back to what you just said, Adam Nevers, the the villain of the piece, Yeah. Uh, again, he is completely over the top. I mean, he's literally this wizened old <laughs> cackling lunatic yeah, at right. the end of it all. And, and yet, and yet what, what, what slightly ticked me off about that is that his actual reason for doing what he's doing, his motivations, um, in the mouth of someone who's slightly less megalomaniacal, well, he's not megalomaniacal, but just slightly less obsessed, but maybe, um, are actually reasonably good arguments, which being that we are going out into this universe not really understanding what we're touching. And, yeah, it's great from a, oh, wow, the mountain's there, mm. let's climb it sort of perspective, but... Because this this Nevers guy says, look what we've done to our children. Look what we've done to them. They they, they, they get this sleepy sickness, fall asleep, never wake mm. up. How is this a good thing? Now, unfortunately, coming out of the mouth of this particular man who is completely and utterly obsessed uh, with, uh, uh, get, you know, essentially putting Ada Morange, I think her name is, in jail, even though, even though she's become a laminated brain. So, you know, that just shows you the sort of levels that this book goes to. Um is you know that 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 unfortunately trumps all. Well, I think is really an interesting idea, argument. Not not that we should stop progress, but what does it mean to just have unlimited access to technologies that we don't entirely understand? And I think that gets lost in my view because Nevers, in particular, the driving force for the I suppose not troglodyte, but you know, but but the, the pullback sort of view is just a complete lunatic. Yeah. Let me ask you all, do you think the book opens clearly or did, did you felt it take you, took you a little while to find your footing in it? And at what point did you realize the narratives were as far apart in time as they are? Well, we're told at the very beginning that at one section, the Lisa section, we're told it was 30 years ago that the Jackaroo, and then I think maybe in the next chapter uh, when we're in... Uh, the, 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 the hundred years future section. The first few paragraphs say something like the Jack Roo arrived 150 years ago. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was a clue. But to get back to the first point of your question, I think that the, the near future part, and this goes back to why this is not being published in the United States. The near future part seems to me to be eminently accessible and littered with the kind of, um, the pop culture references that are meant to draw you in. They, you know, they, 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 they have, they go to Starbucks. They have big box star stores. They wear Ray-Bans. They, 
uh, use Creative Commons licenses and so forth. See, I found myself, no, but, sorry, what did you, say? you thought they were homogenous? No, I, I don't mean homogenous. I, I no, no, Jonathan, I'm, I'm asking no, Jonathan. I don't, okay. I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they're homogenous, no. But I did find myself, as I read it, it took me a while to find my footing in the narrative and to become really engaged. I found the first 15, 20% of the book, I was not thoroughly engaged by all of the events and what was happening. And there's a point where what's happening in Lisa's timeline particularly takes off. And that was where I felt the story really began to fully engage me. I felt in the first 50... When her dog pages, dies? Yeah, just around there. I, I would have felt that around 50, 80 pages <laughs> along, I could have set the book aside if, I, if something had distracted me. By the time I was halfway in, by the time the plots both were really going, we'd begun to see the evolution of Tony's timeline, we'd seen his mm. conflict with his family, we'd seen his relationship with his, his lover and the perspective of that to the rest of the story and what it said about him as a character, all that kind of stuff. Then it began to build. I mean, they do use stick figure characters. Macaulay does use stick figure characters in the background that are pulled out of pulpy science fiction, if you like, but are played very straight. I mean, because you, you, know, you talk about Adam Neville, the police officer, who initially is a, a, you know, a fairly ominous but not over-the-top police of, you know, character but become he kills a dog once you kill a dog he kills a talking dog yes he kills a talking dog but he does it off camera and he doesn't do it himself he just merely like <laughs> he, you know I mean? in fairness but, and similarly the mad scientist cra you know, craving immortality uh, what's her name uh, Ada Ada who, who you know really is mostly you know, off-camera for a large chunk of the book, because that's you know, mm. the, the way the rest of the book gets, isn't smothered by an over-the-top character like that. I mean, I think if he'd chosen to tell Ada's biography as the story, it would have been a very pulpy thing indeed, whereas the story did tell, actually holds perspective. But I did, I did find, yeah, I, f I found this is a book where, as much as I came to really enjoy it, it took me a little while, and, and that's not always the case with Macaulay, I don't think. I think the difference uh, for me between the two sections, the the, the first novel, uh, the, 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 the two narrative lines, something coming through, the two narrative lines were not as separated as they are here. And the two, essentially the two styles of science fiction were not as different as they are here. Because once we get introduced to Lisa's world, which is pretty similar to what we've seen in other Jackaroo stories and in something coming through, then we immediately... Uh, leap into what is a, a a slam bang space opera you know you're 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 excavating you've got a bunch of scientists who he calls wizards uh trying to find secrets in these stromatolites and a and a horribly frightening spaceship is coming at you and you hide out by going inside a hollowed out asteroid he's han solo for a couple of uh, chapters there and this is before i got to know him so i think part of the problem is that that space opera flavor of his early chapters sort of postponed your understanding of him as a character or understanding his place in the narrative, whereas Lisa was a much more human character from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, and I know, sorry, not to run over James or anything, but I, um, I didn't really have, I had not read the first book, and I didn't have 
a real issue engaging. I, I, yeah, I didn't have a real issue engaging straight away. I suppose, um, I like, again, Lisa's a perfectly sympathetic, sympathetic character straight off. And I suppose right. when, um, the, the Tony narrative, when the head scientist on the slimy planet, uh, gets uh, shot <laughs> in the head about 10 pages in, I thought, yeah, all right, mm-hmm. I, I can, I can go with this. It's, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I I actually I think I engaged with it reasonably quickly, to be fair. So let me ask you guys this. I mean, one of the questions we come around to in this. I mean, we're talking about first of all the the second book in the series. We're talking about probably the eighth or tenth story in a sequence, uh, you know, in the Jackaroo sequence. Would you recommend this as a reasonable starting point for people? Would you say go back and read something coming through, or uh, could could a, a reader coming to it fresh dive in and be happy? Absolutely, it was my starting point. I think it's better than something coming through. I think it's. Um, I think so, Yeah, something coming through is playing a lot with kind of even with with with, with noir fiction with gangster. Uh, it was. It does not open up as much as this one does. One of the things when I uh, see something that's going to introduce as many complex ideas, and and you want to see, and this is this this is my being an old science fiction reader. You want to see the outward spiral. You want to see the plot enlarge as it proceeds along. It does this much more effectively in this than it did in in something coming through. Mm-hmm. I, I I am very fond of the. But, well, the first of these Jackaroo things I read, which was the um, the choice, the one that was in Asimov's. Oh, actually, I have read that. I've re- is that a Jackaroo story? Yes, okay, I've read that. Okay, yeah. Read oh. Although I think it's a slightly different version of the universe, isn't it? Because there's alien technology on Earth. I'm not sure. Yeah, isn't, that, isn't, that a, isn't that a, a, a crashed? Isn't that a crashed spaceship under under a lot? Le- the two boys flying. Okay. okay. Well, anyway, look, I didn't even make the connection, so there you go. But anyway, James, please keep going. Oh no, no, I'm just, I, look, I think it's I think it's a much better novel than something coming through. I like something coming through. I liked it quite a lot, but it is, as Gary said, it's much more. You know, you've got a kind of hard-boiled detective, you know, and it feels like a much more routine thing at a kind of character right. level. Whereas I found both the central characters in this very. Very absorbing, very humane, you know, and and it just feels like a more, I guess, both a more expansive and a more felt novel than than something coming through. I, I was sorry to discover that it's actually going to be the the, the final of these novels, which I well, the, he's not but didn't the last ten didn't the last ten pages hint to that? I mean, he essentially the the char or car or however it's pronounced. Uh, you know, I know, no, Jonathan, you haven't read this, but uh, he, the card basically says, it gives us a wink to the audience as to what's going on with both itself and the Jackaroo. Not, not in a, not as overtly as I just described, but, you know, it essentially explains what the Jackaroo is. But then, and that, the, and that's the like finishing further. point. Yeah. I think it, it is. I was going to say, it's, 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 it's a, it's a double reversal, and this is a complete spoiler. Yeah, we're told what the Jackaroo are, which is kind of almost, a wonderful parody of what we thought they were, and then we're told, "No, that's not really it at all." That's true. Can I tell you what may be the most surprising thing for me about this book uh, and about Paul McCauley? It's that something coming through, and it's, it's everywhere, is not 
probably going to be the only Paul McCauley book of the year. There's a second novel. What's the other one? There's a new novel uh, called Austral, which is tentatively slated for uh, October, I think, uh, which might be interesting, but it's not Jack, a Jack Rue thing. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing also with Macaulay, it's interesting that he tends to, when he's writing series or whatever else, he tends to rehearse them. So, I mean, he, he spends six years writing Jack Rue stories, you know, I mean, because I think Dust, which is the first of them, came back out in 2006. Stories like City of the Dead, Adventure, Crimes of Glory, Bruce Springsteen, The Man, they come out over a period of time. He did the same thing with The Quiet War, I think. There was a series of Quiet War short stories where he was trying things on. And mm. Austral, which I think uh, centers around Antarctica, there have been a number of Antarctica-based stories that he's done of late. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's interesting that he's managed, well, to me, that he's managed to make the short fiction that he writes integral to the novels that he writes, which isn't something you see that often. So you think, you think he's reasonably unique in that he does do this rehearse well, sort of thing? I think it's a little unusual, yeah, I do. I, I can't think of a lot of people who've done that where you can turn around and see short fiction used as a way of rehearsing the ideas and the structures of, of what you're going to do at novel length and then do you know do it. Now, I don't know if, that's, if the truth of it is he's not rehearsing at all. It's just that's how he gets beguiled into actually spending the time writing the books. You know, like, yeah, you have okay. the idea, you play around, and you go, oh, there's more here, there's more here, and then suddenly here's four Quiet War novels kind of thing. Uh, that may well be the case, but I think it's interesting that, that that's how he's managed to, to, to go. Although that was fairly common back in the in the 50s. I mean, Gordon Dixon would write a, a lot of Dorsai stories and then would start getting Dorsai novels. Uh, that was simply a matter of making a livelihood as, as, as a writer during that era. You, you built up interest in the um, novels by writing short stories. I'm not sure that dynamic works anymore. But can, can, I, can I ask something? Oh, sorry. So no, who, no, who was that? Go ahead. Go ahead. Can I ask something that could potentially derail the entire podcast? And is, but, but it is linked to Macaulay, so it's not completely off topic. And that is there's been some interesting discussion as of late, not about the Hugo Award, uh, but about the Clark. And uh, how ambitious it is—not just this year's uh, set of nominees, but the last few years. And we, you noted that Macaulay has been nominated was it five times for the Clark. Yeah. And there, you know, there's a fantastic uh, article by Nina Allen, which you all may have read or not. It's reasonably recent about um, whether the Clark has uh, the, the, the Clark's um, potential of um, having a conversation with the literary world is sort of slipping by as it starts to, as the judges seem to be going back to picking uh, nominees that are from the same old stock. And the reason why I bring it up in this conversation is because, you know, well, obviously this book potentially next year will be up for any number of awards, BSFA, Clark, whatever, Hugo's mm -hmm. and, and the like. But if I look at an award like the Clark, is Macaulay now just simply part of the furniture in terms of British SF and SF in general? And so that if he were to be nominated for a number of uh, of the uh, British critics out there and others, it's just, uh, well, that's an easy choice or a safe choice. It's just another one of, you know, we're just dipping back into the same well. Or does he still have something new and interesting to say? And I talk specific to this novel in that um, I think we've said some very interesting things about it and there's some nice stru structural elements. And I, and, I, and I found it very entertaining. But is he doing anything that's, 
well, I don't want to say literary because it's it prejudices the answer, but 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 is he just well? I'll go back to what I said before. Is he simply part of the furniture now? In this, in that sense, oh, the, the the awkward silence that, that my question is. <laughs> it's an awkward it's, question. It speaks volumes. Uh, I mean, there was a sense when uh, earlier in the conversation, Jonathan mentioned "Whole Wide World," which was not a hugely successful novel. Although looking back on it now. Uh, is very much like the kind of mainstream approaches to science fiction we've seen. And that was that probably was as far as he went in the direction of writing a contemporary thriller based on a surveillance society. Uh, and I don't know how or what that did with the Clark Awards. Uh, well, I think no, but, it, but, but all the self-referential stuff that's in this book that you've all spoken about today, is that yeah. just an example that he's part of the part of the wallpaper now and that and to the point where he will he, he knows so much and he clearly is so heavily engaged with the the field as a whole that this is just what he does and therefore and and, and you know the question was asked whether that's off-putting i didn't find off-putting because i didn't pick a lot of it up but whether that's just you know if you see paul mccauley now on a on a uh, on an awards list it's oh, really mccauley d is that where we're at that not that that's my view but that, that's I don't the think, impression you get. I don't think the idea is as dismissive as that. If I can just make a, a bizarre comparison to being on the Research and, and Professional Improvement Committee at my university, people put together proposals to, they want to write a book or they want to write a series of articles or they want to do a, a, a research project in Peru for the biologists. And sometimes the committee will give the award to somebody who needs the award for encouragement Whereas somebody else who is actually a much more accomplished scientist may not get the award because the committee will say he'll do it anyway or she'll do it anyway. In other words, okay. there's a sense that Macaulay is going to produce good, solid Paul Macaulay novels. And we don't really need to look at them anymore because we know they're going to be there. In some perverse way, it's a compliment to his uh, stability as a novelist. But then is this the, the, the answer to my one of my earliest questions about his success at a broader level, uh, particularly outside of uh, you know, the UK, that completely unfairly to a, a gifted um, artist and tradesman uh, who, who can produce high-quality science fiction novels, because it's so predictable that he will, you actually kind of deprecate them as being, oh, as you said just there, now, Gary, just another really good Paul McCauley novel. I mean, on one hand, yeah. Into Everywhere is just another really good Paul McCauley novel. The problem with that assessment is really wrong-headed is it's really rare to find a book that's as good as just another really good Paul McCauley novel. Absolutely. And in response to your question, Ian, my own feeling, and I don't know what James feels about that, I'd be interested to know, uh, my own feeling is I don't think we're there yet and I don't think that would be fair to Macaulay. I don't think it, I mean, I don't know how necessarily the BSFA and the Clark Award judges and everyone else will feel about it or how people always feel when they see his name on awards ballots. But my feeling is, first of all, he doesn't show up anywhere near enough. And in fact, I'm more likely to sit there and go, maybe, oh, there he is showing up as he should do on British award ballots and I'm not seeing him elsewhere, which is really frustrating. You know, we, yeah. we, we started this podcast series with Adam Roberts and his book, The Thing Itself, which is a, a marvelous book, which hasn't featured on a lot of awards ballots, you know, this year. 
if not deserves to do so. Um, and he falls into a similar point of view uh, position as Macaulay, even though he, he came along some years later. Um, and maybe to a lesser degree, the same is true of, say, a Steve Baxter. Um, so I don't think that he's just a furniture. I think it's a relief when he shows up on, on awards ballots. And I think he's proven that even though he chooses to occupy with his fiction, usually, the very core of science fiction itself, I mean, n nothing is more fundamental to the idea of science fiction as a genre than, you know, the space opera slash, slash hard SF adventure story. And that's, you know, Macaulay's meat and potatoes. But he still finds something to do with it that's interesting and engaging. And every now and again, new. That's a really good answer, Jonathan. And that's not me being patronising. That that was thank you. What do you James, think? do you have anything to add on that? No. <laughs> 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 I do. Uh, you raise an interesting point, though, in in, in the sense of um, of what maybe awards juries especially look for. I'm not sure about popular votes, and that is that if somebody is an excellent, consistent writer at at what you've just described as as hard science fiction adventure, in other words, ordinary science fiction, um, it becomes a performative thing. Uh, here is somebody who we know can do this really well. He's done it really well again. And let's look at something that is more surprising. Yeah. I mean, look, Macaulay is in the slough of mid-career. You know, I mean, it's that, that kind of terrible thing that happens to writers, which is that, you know, if you're good and you continue to be good and you continue to publish, it's, you know, there comes a point where, you know, you're not old enough to be a kind of, you know, uh, one of the kind of august figures of the scene. You're no longer mm. young and shiny. Mm. You know, you just kind of, you've got an audience. It's, 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 it's a, you know, it, it's a terrible place and many writers end up there, you know, and it's not a, it's just a kind of, I think it's a fact of kind of, you know, what literary lives look like. You know, I mean, and I think it happens to a lot of writers. But does he have, does he have the chops or the wherewithal to do another fairyland? I would say so, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, it's just, now, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a stupid open-ended question, I know, but that's, you know, that's that's a book that doesn't sort of just slot neatly into the Paul Macaulay um, overt that, that we've been discussing. I think what, what blurs things as well in these sorts of situations is if you if you engage as a really talented, gifted, intelligent mid-list writer in the classic term of, of what a mid-list writer is, which is someone who can be terrific but tends to sell at a certain level rather than a qualitative assessment, then you get run over in the modern world. And one of the things about being a mid-list writer in science fiction is you produce a book a year. And, yeah. you know, there's Macaulay, he's producing a novel a year or more. And that begins to make people feel like it's just another damn Paul Macaulay book and I didn't read the last four, so I don't need to read the next one. And it's why, say, a Bill Gibson stands out. It's not necessarily, even though he's a very different writer from uh, Macaulay, his books come out every three years and they're an event. And everybody's like, oh, it's a new Bill Gibson book. You know, and there are other reasons why, but at least part of it is he, he's not producing with that degree of frequency. And, I mean, at least he hasn't had you know, the impact of, say, somebody else who, who, although a very different kind of writer, could have had a similar shape of career, like Bruce Sterling, who was very prolific and was a, a, you know, a, a very solid mid-list writer of, of fine work, uh, but whose commercial career went away, basically, 
and I think has produced, what, two novels in the last 12 years as a result. Yeah, okay. So, and and I, in fact, just to add, I don't think he's had a, in fact, I know he hasn't had a novel out from a major publisher in seven, anywhere in the world. You know, so, it ain't easy out there, and I think we're, we're lucky to have writers like Macaulay around. I mean, I can't wait to read Austral. I'm, even though we've had this conversation, I'm going, I know you we've avoided some spoilers because I've not read the rest of it, but I'm eager to go and see what else has happened in the book, or in the remainder of the book. And looking across the four books we've read this year, I think we've had a really one, you know, high standard of books that we've looked at. I mean, I love the thing itself. I think All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Andrews is one of the best books of the year. I like Kingfisher, though it's becoming a little bit less in my memory now, uh, a little while after reading it, and I'm really loving this. Have you come across the ray gun yet? No. Oh, okay, yeah, there's... There's a ray gun. Thanks. No. There is a, oh, it's called a ray gun. It's... <laughs> <laughs> It's, there, it's, there are, it's, it's actually I, I the bit that I laughed out the most, which I've just spoiled I, 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 for you. I, I, there there are sentences that I'm sure Macaulay wrote in this, thinking this is a pulp magazine sentence from Amazing Stories in 1939, and I get to write it. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah and it the Ray Gun is the, the situation they're describing. Yeah. Well, and, 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 next, and next month we're doing an author who's also in a similar situation. Well, no, it might be different. I don't know. I, I assume we're doing who we discuss we're doing which is you can tell everybody ian yeah because well, yeah i'm better now because i've just you know again made it awkward for everyone um we're doing uh guy gabriel k's children of earth and sky and uh james thank you james thank you for the uh package it actually i didn't have to you know go through 400 emails and a convoluted process to get the, the review copy so thanks for that <laughs> You're making it sound like we're doing a drug deal. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it is a bit of a new, with a new Guy Gabriel K book. I'm looking forward to it a great deal. And, and Gary's already read it, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? I have read it. That's true. And, Gary's uh, yeah. I'm not going to spoil it for you. I just, uh, well, so there, there are so many things to talk about. The, the thing we have to watch out without getting into the conversation now, every time I've been on a panel discussion or at a bar discussion, people talk about K's strategy of writing historical fantasy more than the content of the novels people get obsessed with why does he do it the way he does so okay, are we, well are we going to bar that as a, as, as a topic for, for the conversation gary because no, i think it's not a, bad a whole idea. hour talk about just oh, that God. question okay, so <laughs> i'm deeply uninterested by that question me too it's dull what a fun thing to get hung up on <laughs> i mean look oh, we, no we'll presage it there's there's one good reason that that guy does it that he's put in all the interviews whenever he's asked a question, and it's fine. And we'll touch on it when we actually do the podcast. But it's the least interesting thing about any of the books. I mean, Under Heaven, which I think is a marvelous book, the least interesting thing is why he's chosen to the, you know, that that semi-historical approach with it. So yeah. But I think we've we've we've, we've looked at some great books. I'm looking forward to the May ep episode of the podcast. I mean, I am a little distressed about one trend, gentlemen, because if I'm right. Each book that we have done is longer than the pre preceding yes, one. Yes, you are correct. And you are, I'd like to yes. see, you know, I mean, I love Guy's work, but I'd like to think that the, that the 556 pages of Children of Earth and Sky will, will represent something of a high watermark for the Cooch Street Roundtable. Uh, yeah, we're doing, well, we're well, next, don't we? Sorry, what? We have, 
doing Wheel of Time after that, aren't we? <laughs> no, no, we're gonna add, no. What we're going to do is we get Adam Robertson, and he can play all of us in the discussion, and he can talk about his experience <laughs> reading it. <laughs> you know what? That would be a great episode of the Coot Street Podcast. It but would. Anyway, completely off the topic now. But on that note, <laughs> I think we have we've come to the end of this thing. Other than to say, I certainly heartily recommend this book and the work of Paul McCauley. Uh, it's well worth seeking out, um, and I think that, that, that that's a, a commonly shared opinion, gentlemen. Yes. Yeah, I definitely would read. Absolutely. I mean, I've read, I read all the Quiet War books and I've read the, I've read more five or six books now. Yeah, he's, he's polished. He knows what he's doing. You get good stuff when you read McCauley. Yeah. Highly recommended by me as well. I agree. And yeah. it's, it's fun. And with that, and there are parts where, there are parts where he's clearly having fun. And I always kind of enjoy that vibe that you get from a writer who's, uh, who, who likes to write science fiction. He loves writing science fiction. He does it well, and he uh, he wants to combine the familiar with the innovative. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, it is, for all the, however we talk about it, it's really engaging, sometimes very funny, so, uh, sometimes very, uh, real page-turning kind of adventure kind of a story. And until we get mm. back with Children of Earth and Sky, I think that's us for the podcast. So thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure. Same thank here. you. Talk to you all next week. Bye.